I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged, Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. We're coming to you from the Credo House, Edmond, Oklahoma. Pretty soon here, maybe we'll have that will have meaning Credo House, Edmond, Oklahoma, as opposed to Credo House elsewhere, else. perhaps. Yeah. yeah, we've got uh, Tim with us. I'm Michael. Tim, Sam, good to have you guys once again. Good nice to have to you back, Sam. Good to be here. Yeah, good to be we've here. Been, you, he's been gone for what a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been holding down the fort without him, doing yeah. the best we can. Well, we just had a couple of broadcasts specifically on him and talked about him. And yeah, arrogance and yeah, humility right. and different topics, uh-huh. non-related, but still. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk today a little bit about uh, what we talked about last time. Now, uh, we Tim, you and I recorded one last yeah. week. Yeah, and it didn't record. Now I'm making sure this one is. We are hypersensitive to the recording right now. And then I had to come in late and record another one with Carrie, which was fantastic. I listened to it; it was great. You guys did a great job. Well, you know, it was it was amazing to me, and and uh, you know, skipping all introductions that we normally might do, jumping right into the subject. It was amazing to me how much response we got from this subject, and how many people were writing to me, uh, sending emails, posting on the blog, and just talking about the need for this Mm -hmm. and how much they see it themselves. Yeah. And what we talked about was this whole idea of theological arrogance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being in theological ministry, being in one where it's our hope, every single day we talk about this and we pray about this and we say, God help us to bring people to two things. One, a deeper belief, and two, a more accurate belief. Exactly. And we have found, whenever we get into this sometimes, that those are good things, but sometimes they produce something that's odd, some type of byproduct that is some type of arrogance. Now, Sam, you're going to be joining us here today, and you're going to be jumping in on this conversation, but I'm going to tell a story first, guys, so that we can get things going, and, and so you can see where we're coming from. Is it about my profound humility? It is. <laughs> we, we, we did mention Sam. We mentioned Sam in the first one, but that one got cut. And that's right. That's right. Yeah. We, we, we won't did, say what's We did what's, mention That's why I list have no idea on. why I'm here on the subject <laughs> related to an arrogance, but <laughs> Michael, luckily, I've obviously just tipped my hand, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, la- let's let's put it into context here so that our listeners and you guys can see why it is that I feel like I want to do another broadcast on this, not only because people have written in, but because I think that this is a great illustration of, of what, do we, what happens out there, and then it sets us up for the question of what do we do about this. But we had a couple people, we have people come in here in the Credo House all the time. Sometimes the people, they come in and understand what the Credo House is about. They get a cup of coffee, sit down, get some books, and love the place. Mm-hmm. Other times people come in and they have no clue what it's all about. Like, you know, a couple of days ago, whenever the lady came in here and ordered coffee and said, what is this place about? And we said, well, it's an evangelical Christian place where we teach theology. And she did not have a good look on her face after that. <laughs> I don't think she could have gotten out of here quicker. Mm. It was uh, something that uh, was a odd reaction. Yes, we aim to drive everyone away from the Credo House. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Well, yesterday we had um, somebody that came in that that I sat down with. Sometimes we'll just be hanging out in the Credo House. Sometimes we're going to be back in our offices, and sometimes we're going to be hanging out in the Credo House. Well, I had a guy that came in here. He was so excited about the place. I mean, you couldn't have seen anybody more excited. And just wanted to talk about what it is that we do and what it is that he does in ministry. And he begins to tell me about, uh, you know, his ministry and how excited he is about it. Now, as I'm talking to this guy, I can really tell that I'm different than him in a lot of ways, theologically speaking. He was uh, talking about the scripture and kind of how whenever he looks at the scripture, he prays that God would give him the exact meaning of it. And that whenever he reads it, he feels like, it kind of all of a sudden becomes the meaning. And, I, I, you know, as I'm talking to him, the guy is just a great guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really was. He loves the Lord, excited about things, and, and I'm getting excited with him. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm looking at him saying, well, you know, whenever you read that scripture just then, I, I don't think that's what it means. You were thinking that. I was thinking that. Yeah. I didn't say that to him, but I don't really care sometimes in circumstances. And, and this is one of the things that we have to talk about it, uh, during these broadcasts is, when do you stop someone in the middle of their diatribe and say, listen, you're going the wrong direction here? When do we feel compelled whenever we have what we feel to be the right answer and we need to correct them? Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I don't. Most of the time, I'm fine. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, you can sit there and if I feel like you're really wrong, uh, sometimes I can just let it go. I think there's right times confront people there's right relationships that are prepped for confrontation and then there's just other times hey come on we're, we're a lot of us are going to be different so how about this guy at the credo house did you were you did you confront him well no this this guy was just okay. uh, we were just having a conversation he's new to the credo house i don't know him he he's excited the things that he's saying aren't that bad i mean it's just you know wrong interpretation but not necessarily that bad of theology here at least in my opinion mm. But he, he begins to ask me, and he's real humble about it, too. And he says, uh, this is where I'm going with this. And he was kind of saying, I'm getting ready to start a whole new ministry based upon my interpretation of this particular verse. And he said, can you give me some help here? Am I, if I, am I getting this right? And so we just talked about the verse for a little while. I said, you know, one of the things you need to do is you probably ought to consult not only a lot of different people on this about their interpretation, but consult all of church history, see if there's agreement on this particular passage. Nobody's ever been agreed upon what this means. You know, it's uh, it was the one about uh, I if you see a brother committing a sin unto death, mm-hmm. pray for him. And I said, let me show you real quick. And I showed him a commentary, and I said, see, look, this one commentary has five views, and at the end they say they don't really know which one it is. And I said, that's kind of an indication sometimes where we need to be careful. Especially not to build an entire ministry off of this one passage. Well, St. Augustine's, one of his principles was, uh, do not build theology off obscure text. Mm -hmm. But the guy was real humble about it, real nice, but at the same time, so many ways we were different theologically. But he was humble. He was a joy to be around. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, sit down, let's have a cup of coffee. And he was here for about five hours. (laughs) (laughs) He did stick around for a while. Uh, Now, that's case number one. Case study number one, done. Case study number two was not five minutes later, right? Yeah. Actually, at the same time that this guy was in the building. Yeah, that's right. 
We're sitting up. Uh, you, you're up there at the coffee bar. I'm I'm making my magic with my Luther lattes. You're making some guy a Luther latte. I come up in the middle of y'all's conversation. By the time I get there, this guy's just he's not talking anymore. Yeah, he looks like well, he he looks worse than that lady that came in here and found out we're a Christian organization and took off. I mean, he could not want to get out of here fast enough. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was. That he came in, saw John Calvin picture on the wall. He didn't even know we were a Christian place, you know? Yeah. But but he saw John Calvin on the wall. He said, whoa, you guys are Calvinists. <laughs> and, and Tim was like, you know, he tries to explain. He says, well, you know, personally, I am and Michael is, but the ministry itself tries to be evangelical, and we're trying to educate broadly, and so we're not trying to push this too much. And then he asks, well, what church do you guys go to? And Tim says, well, I go to Life Church. Okay, and for Life Church, for those of you who don't understand, if if you're very very theologically astute, Life Church may not be what you think is the ideal church. Yeah, but what Tim said was, well, the reason why we go to Life Church is because it, it needs you know discipleship, and they understand their need for discipleship, and it's a great place to be. And he never said another word to us, did he? Well, I went into some further conversation, and it was, it, from his perspective, it was it was definitely a full-on attack against this church, against Life Church. Uh, it was him hitting me with a bunch of, well, how could you be there because of A? How can you be there because of B? How can you be there because of C? Your theology does not seem to uh, make it possible for you to attend that church. And then, and then... You began to tell him about how we have trained their leaders. They're coming to the Credo House. Yeah, I was telling about all the exciting things of how open they are, as it was this first guy, how open they are to partnership and to training and to allowing us to speak into their lives and and it's not just outsiders now it's us from being a part of that church not just to change the church but just to be a part of that church and to let our gifts uh, speak into the life of the body and so the, you're showing how these these uh this tr- this particular church is very receptive towards learning and teaching and understanding so we're trying to say listen i mean this is something that we feel like we're able to help out yeah but he was, I mean, I got up there. It was like Sam. I told him that I'm from the kingdom of darkness. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got up there, and this guy, I thought, you know, he was going to drop off a bomb or, or something in the place because he was upset. He well, was and I told him that you went to Life Church as well. Yeah. So, so neither of us had any, I mean, we should have just, just for duck, the record, duck to I, I don't go to Life Church. <laughs> And I don't. And I think this guy went to Sam's church. Actually, no, I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm totally kidding. Oh. No, he told me what church he went to. It wasn't yours. Okay, now no, <laughs> let me let me let me bring this part to a close, and then open it up to where we discuss this and try to you know at least I try to figure out why it is that I'm bringing this up and want to ask you guys questions about this. I thought to myself, even if okay, and at this point I'm like, even if. Even if this guy does have some superior theology and understanding to this other group that he doesn't like, even if, what part of Christ's statement, I have come to the sick, don't we understand at that point? You see, I think this guy was probably theologically astute. As far as theology, I probably lined up more with this guy, definitely lined up more with this guy than I did that guy I talked to earlier. 
that was not theologically astute. But the fellowship, there was a breach in the fellowship between me and the guy at the bar and not a breach in the fellowship between me and the guy sitting down. The guy at the bar had been in there for 10 minutes, and we were glad to see him go. Yeah. The other guy had been here for five hours, and we were a little bummed when he left. Yeah. And I experienced that, Sam. I don't know if you do. I experienced that a lot. I, I, I love doctrine. I love whenever we are able to teach and deepen people's understanding and the sovereignty of God and, and even many of the things about Calvinism. I consider myself a Calvinist. But in the end, sometimes these type of people, and I'm not just saying Calvinist, but that could be a good illustration sometimes, these type of people are less least like people that I want to be around. You ever experienced that? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I have just a quick question. Um, how old were these two guys? One, they were actually almost the same age. Yeah, looked like in their forties. In their forties. Yeah. Really? Okay. One of the things that I that I've discovered is that, and and this is largely has come out of my own experience, is that uh, people who hold these extremely um, rigid and what appears to be arrogant approaches that would look down their nose at you attending Life Church have had very little experience day in day out with Christians from a broad spectrum of beliefs and they have some pretty deep-seated prejudices and they deep in their hearts they probably actually believe that these that that, that the people who don't embrace their theology don't love Jesus mm-hmm. and really are not committed to uh, the glory of God and the centrality of Christ as much as they think they are um, I think I think this was one of the most important lessons I learned. It was truly humbling because, let me just back up a little. When I was at Dallas Seminary, uh, it's not, and when I say, and I use this in the past tense, I'm not suggesting that it isn't still true to a degree today. I was unbelievably arrogant. And we. it was difficult for us to agree to have lunch with anybody at the cafeteria who didn't embrace our view of uh, the, the sovereignty of God. Um, and it wasn't until many years later, really about um, 10 years after I'd graduated, when I began to pastor a church in Ardmore here in Oklahoma, that I found myself among people who, come, who came from vastly different denominational backgrounds, even significantly different theological perspectives, that I was really shocked to discover that in many cases they appeared to love God more than I did. And that was, that was unsettling to me. It was humbling. Um, they weren't maybe as theologically uh, well-read. They probably couldn't articulate arguments the way that maybe a seminary graduate could. But it was amazing to find out how deeply committed to the centrality of Jesus and the gospel they were. Now, And would you say that these people maybe, could you even go this far, just, just humor me, could you say that these people maybe were not even as theologically correct as you are? That's true. That's true, yeah, and, and particularly in some of the areas that you've just mentioned, like in the issues of salvation and the like. Um, but then um, uh, I, I experienced something of the same thing maybe that Tim felt in his conversation with this gentleman when I left Ardmore and went to Kansas City and became part of a vineyard church. 
and uh, in, in which there were very few, if any, Calvinists other than myself and a small handful. And this is a church of 3,000 people. Um, and again, people from a, a variety of theological backgrounds who were perhaps not as uh, committed to uh, in-depth theological study as I had hoped or at least thought they should be. And yet I was, I was humbled by how devoted to the gospel, to engaging with unbelievers they were, how much they embraced the authority of Scripture, how passionate they were in their worship. And again, it's not to excuse theological error to the degree that they might have embraced it. Of course, we all embrace it to some degree. Uh, but it was the experience over years that that really awakened me to this. And I'm coming to, to kind of bring this to a consummate expression. And, and you didn't name names, by the way. I'm going to name somebody's name. When I went to Wheaton College uh, in 2000, I taught there for four years. Um, my wife and I became members of an Anglican church that was uh, led by Lyle Dorset, who taught at Wheaton for 20-something years. Now he's at Beeson Divinity School. Lyle is a Wesleyan Anglican. Mm-hmm. And um, he and I had some long, uh, intense discussions about Calvinism and the like. Uh, uh, he's a paedo-baptist. I'm a credo-baptist. He believed in infant baptism. I believe in believer's baptism. And uh, we, we couldn't convince each other. And yet I don't think I've ever met a man more passionate for the gospel and the glory of God than Lyle Dorset. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think... It was because of that interaction, that day-in, day-out um, uh, refining of, of our relationship and seeing somebody in the course of daily life living out the, the principles of God's Word that you suddenly grab hold of yourself and you say, okay, I'm not any less convinced of my theology than I was before I met Lyle. I'm not less a Calvinist now simply because Lyle is a Wesleyan Arminian. But um, I, I think I carry it with, I pray, a little bit more humility and a recognition that his, his agreeing with my theology is not required, first of all, for us to cooperate in ministry, and secondly, for me to recognize that this man is far more advanced in the school of Christ than I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw the presence of Jesus in him, and still do to this day, in a way that I've seen in very few people, and yet we've differed on something that is so very dear to my heart that I think is at the very core of Scripture. Hmm. So the question is, I guess, how do we account for that? But the point being, I'm wondering, have these individuals that we've been referring to and others like them uh, actually befriended and walked through life with someone of a of a, of a different theological perspective on something such as uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Have they watched them raise their families? Have they watched them minister to the hurt and the, and the broken and, and the needy in the body of Christ? Uh, have they prayed with them at length uh, over a variety of issues? And I, I guess what I have seen in my years in ministry is that once I kind of broadened my exposure as you're doing, Tim. For example, you talk about going to Life Church. And my mm-hmm. guess is this is probably the first time that you've been involved in a church of this orientation and of these particular beliefs. 
um, which I think is good because you're doing it early on in your life in ministry. It took me about 20 years before I was actually in the context of a church such as that where I was at fundamental disagreement with mm-hmm. most of the people and even the senior leadership. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I wonder if it just takes a little time and experience. The question is, of course, will that individual you were describing, Michael, ever actually agree that it's biblically permissible for him to develop a deep, close personal relationship with somebody who would mm-hmm. uh, who would mm-hmm. throw up if they saw Calvin's picture on the wall? Because yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. um, uh, sometimes they just can't get the consent of their soul to even engage them in conversation. It has to be an argument, yeah. um, and, and they seriously question the sincerity of their commitment to Jesus. And some of them, tragically seriously question whether the person's even born again yeah man that was my little diatribe sorry to get off on it no no that's good i mean i uh, locally here i i experienced it first time whenever i was um gosh it was probably 90 94 95 and it was just right whenever i first got into the theological issues you know and 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 you begin to discover all these great things and the richness and the depth and you, and you become at least in your own mind a lot more astute and understanding. And I remember beginning to hang around a certain group of people, and there was a bookstore owner that was here local that um, was a very very strong Calvinist. He was a Calvinist to such a degree that he believed that God didn't love everybody; he just loved the elect. He hated everybody else and and really tried to convince me of a lot of kind of a a different realm of Calvinism than I am in. And and I didn't mind that that much. I mean, it was, I don't mind hearing these things and understanding where people are coming from. But I remember him every time I walked in the store, that's the first thing he mentioned. You know, first thing he said, God doesn't love the non-elect. You need to get that down, Michael. And I'd leave the store, come back the next time, and he would come up with a book. This is a book to show you that. That's all we wanted to talk about. And I got really irritated because I, I was I was at the point where, you know, theology was all I wanted to talk about. But after a while, I was like, gosh, I, this guy's just really starting to frustrate me. And I don't want to have fellowship with him. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hang around him. So I avoided the bookstore from then on. Mm-hmm. I, I avoided someone who I was least somewhat close to even though he was you know of a different variety of calvinism than i am well and it's the quote that we have butchered so many times by winston churchill of a fanatic is someone who won't change the subject or who won't change their mind a fanatic is someone who won't change their mind and doesn't change the subject yeah so it's just saying hey i'm i'm always going to be firm on this which you know you can make a case that i should be firm on certain things but to never change the subject yeah. that's an entirely different thing yeah. and that's what you're having fellowship and different people uh, a lot of people are reading dietrich bonhoeffer biography right now by eric metaxas and and i, I think that metaxas brings out great how bonhoeffer was a great example of this i mean one of his best friends was carl bart and he was he was many, many, many years younger than Bart, but Bart looked at him as a dear son, and they differ drastically theologically. Um, and uh, uh, Bonhoeffer actually preached at the funeral, I believe, of Adolf von Harnack as well, who Bonhoeffer would drastically disagree with his views as well. But you see that there's a sense of, of close love 
for the savior and connection that they had. And it didn't change Bonhoeffer's views, but I think what it did was it matured his views uh, mm-hmm. in the process of his life. Yeah, and, I, and I, getting back to your uh, bookstore owner, Michael, I, I think sometimes we can easily fall into the trap of being more in love with our theology of God than we are in love with God. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not so much that I'm passionate about who God is and communicating that to others. I'm passionate about uh, the theological precision of my views about God, and there's a certain satisfaction that would come if I can bring you into alignment with it. I've conquered something. I've, I've somehow honored God greatly if I can uh, put a notch on my theological belt, you know, I chalk up one more, I've convinced Michael that my view is right. And uh, th- there's this zeal to, and, and a sense of, it's, a, it's kind of a, there's a certain kind of a rush to it that, that hits the soul, the mind, the spirit, that comes from feeling as if we've got it all right, but even in the midst of getting it right, we look around and we don't have God. There, there, there's the absence of that uh, of, the, of the personal reality and the, the of a relationship with him uh, that gets swallowed up in trying to conquer and trying to convince and trying to um, uh, to be able to overwhelm somebody into uh, agreeing with us and it is driven by arrogance and pride it really is well we've got you know so many people today in the you know the postmodern the the what was and maybe still is to some degree the emerging movement and and a lot of these people are really rebelling against theology in general because of this arrogance that is produced because of this lack of character that is produced because they have been around people just like what we have talked about here Mm -hmm. that can't change the subject and won't change their mind and in the end not only that but have absolutely no grace meekness, humility, love, and, and lacking all these kind of essential elements. And, and you stop for a moment, you say, well, if this is what it produces, you know, whether you're right or not, I would rather produce the, the first guy I talked about earlier in the broadcast than the second guy. The first guy wasn't theologically astute in the same way, wasn't opinionated as far as these things, was, was kind, gracious, seemed to love Jesus. And this other guy... I had the right things, but man. But again, of course, but you're not saying, I'm sure, and, and I'm certainly not, we're not saying that in order to be humble, you have to be uh, riddled with doubt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, or there's nothing inherently inconsistent, as the scriptures set, clearly set it forth, between uh, confidence and assurance and a sense of joy in, in in knowing truth accurately on the one hand and profound humility on the other. Well, see, mm-hmm. the difference between the first guy not, I don't think, and the second guy was not simply confidence. I think the first guy had confidence, but I think it was a very emotional confidence. You know, it was just a confidence not that he had engaged the issues and knew what books to read and knew who to quote and all that kind of stuff. Well, his was a confidence in God more than a confidence of his view of God, I would say. I guess, but it, but it could have been self-produced. If I looked yeah. at him, I would say, well, you know, your, your interpretation here is probably a self-produced confidence, and, you know, it could be interpreted and shaped, mm-hmm. and it, it is wrong, and, you know, uh, because I do believe what he, what he drew out of that passage was wrong. It was just rather bizarre. 
Um, and the second guy is confidence is based upon you know an intellectual engagement. But it seems like once you grab a hold of that intellectual engagement and get confidence from that source, suddenly you become you, you got this fork in the road. This way, monster. This way, humility. Mm. You know, and, and I think in the end, uh, hopefully, true theology produces humility rather than that monster. Well, and I think it's seeking where's the power we're looking for because I think a lot of times we're moving into that category of a monster because we're seeking to to defend God. We're seeking to to be a light in the world. You know, we don't want to say, well, I don't want to just sit in my corner in my office and just believe these things. I want to go out and proclaim them. So as I'm proclaiming them, it's almost like saying I, I need to become arrogant and proud and boastful and a dominant type A personality to be able to tell people about God, which is not true. I mean, Paul so many times said that his, the power is in God and that he is, is just serving God. And I think that sometimes we mistake that we need to become arrogant or proud or, or whatever, domin- we need to dominate people in order to convert people instead of just saying we need to hold God lightly. I, we need to, to look at ourselves that in us is nothing and that our focus is just on God and to seek to know him better and know him more accurately but recognize that the power is always in God, not in my my persuasion or in my dominance over someone else. Well, let's let's carry this over into the next broadcast, and I want to get real specific and try to look and see how grace in doctrine, I guess, or theological grace, or if we even call it that, how that plays out in our attitudes and how we interact with people with the passion that we have for theology, because mm-hmm. we do have a passion for theology. We have mm-hmm. a passion for truth. And, and and what that looks like. So, until next time, folks. Um, we uh, pray that you have uh, listened to this and uh, been hearing what we're trying to say. And this is a this is a struggle for all of us. I mean, we're not bringing this out as that we have arrived. I mean, what we what brought this up was that us talking about we see this can grow inside of us as well yeah, as we yeah. focus on this twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's. There's very much a center in all of us that can take good things and turn them into something that uh, doesn't work quite so well. But we still pursue the good nonetheless. But we do it, hopefully, a lot differently than we might in our flesh. Folks, uh, next week we'll continue this broadcast. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.